Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm the host of Your Legal Rights, Jeff Hayden. Tonight, we bring you the final installment of our popular feature, and that's Landlord-Tenant Law for 2023. And once again, there's a change afoot in this very fast-changing area of law. It appears that in many parts of California, perhaps even within the Bay Area, the long-awaited rush to the courthouse has emerged. That is, we feared evictions going over a cliff and really ramping up. And it appears that may be happening and that evictions are at or near, at least in some places, maybe even above in some places, pre-pandemic levels. What other changes are afoot? Last spring, we discussed AB 12 legislation that would change significantly what a landlord could charge for a security deposit. Wondering what happened with that bill? Are there other developments in legislation, other things on the horizon? As always, we want you, our most important guest, to join in the conversation, so give us a call. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866 866- 798-8255. And bear in mind that our, our attorney guests are here to educate and inform. They can't provide you precise legal advice for cases they haven't seen, but they're here to help you sort things out. They're here to give you guidance as you try to work your way through your own cases. They can give you guidance and help you understand the legal principles. Returning tonight are guest three of the Bay Area's top landlord-tenant attorneys. For some 20 years, San Francisco landlord-tenant attorney Jessica Chilek represents clients in rent board actions, mediations, and in court for landlord-tenant issues. Jessica launched her practice to specialize in San Francisco residential evictions, vacancy agreements, and rent board petitions for tenants, landlord, master tenants, and subtenants. And joining us from San Mateo, attorney David Finkelstein is a graduate of NYU School of Law. David's admitted to practice in the states of California and New York, beginning his career as a staff attorney in California for the National Housing Law Project at Bolt Hall School of Law. And for the last 40 years or more, David has been representing clients in real estate and landlord-tenant matters. David recently wrote an article published on the issue of protection for renters during the COVID-19 crisis. And that was published in a recent issue of the Apartment Owners News Magazine. And of course, that's what we're talking about today, the fallout from all these moratoriums and exactly what's going on now with these evictions that are either at nearing or going over a cliff. Also from San Francisco, Attorney Salvatore, Salvatore Timpano is considered one of the top attorneys in the Bay Area to practice in the area of landlord-tenant law, representing both landlords and tenants in the area of eviction. And without further ado, Sal, David, Jessica, welcome to your legal rights. Hi, Thanks, Jeff. Jeff. Good. Thank you, Jeff. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what's going on. I mean, the the big thing in the room that we've been talking about for months 
is that eventually when all these protections from eviction, when that really lands, we've long talked about the cliff that people might be going over, that at some point these evictions are going to come back and they're going to come back in numbers. Is that finally hitting? Well, it seems to be. Um, there was a recent article from Cal Matters that talks about how Los Angeles and Alameda counties and various and places like that are, are well over the their 2019 averages for monthly filings. San Francisco is not, though. It's it's still below its 2019 average. I, I don't think San, San Mateo County is above the uh, pre-COVID uh, levels. But, you know, my opinion on, on it is uh, that those, those counties that went to extremes, like I think Alameda, um, you know, they're seeing uh, the pendulum swing to the other extreme with the numbers of, of actions. But San Mateo was never that extreme. Uh, and uh, so we're not seeing that here. I agree with you, David. I, I, I noticed, uh, you know, seeing the articles, the same thing. Uh, our, you know, my office is handling evictions on both, you know, for tenants and landlords. It's not you know, it's, it's, there's not that many more going on. Even if I may have one or two extra or a few more, it's it's not because of COVID. It's just, you know, other reasons. Um, but uh, those other counties are having more. And it, it's tough to litigate in those counties because of the delays in the court system. So anyway, I, I, I think I noticed that. And it seems to be in line with the articles, too. Does anyone know what's happening in other parts of the Bay Area, what's happening in Marin or Contra Costa or Santa Clara? Uh, Not from personal experience, no, but the article did have a chart where we could look up individual counties, I believe. And if people are interested in the article we've been discussing, it's titled Across California, Eviction Cases Have Returned to or Surpassed Pre-Pandemic Levels. And while it was in Cal Matters, it was picked up by other news outlets. And the same, the same story is available on KTVU, amongst others. So let's talk about some of the other things we've been talking about of late and see what's come home to roost. We talked about AB 12, which was looming for a long time. We weren't sure if and when it would pass. Do we know the status of that? Yes, uh, the governor signed it into law, and um, so now the security deposits are limited to one month, uh, whether the unit is furnished or not furnished, but there's an exemption for mom and pops who don't own more than two units and are natural persons um, so that's my understanding. And I think you said earlier that it doesn't go into effect immediately. Is that correct, David? I I saw in the article, I just read about it. I think it said April 1. So just to explore this further, assume you're renting now before this goes into effect. What limitations are there on what a landlord can ask in the way of security. 
Well, it depends where Jessica uh, mentioned before we got on here that uh, San Francisco already had this restriction. No, I was talking about the other article we were talking about. So then my understanding is uh, if if it's unfurnished, uh, you can't ask for more than two months security. If it's furnished, you can ask for three months until April 1, after that, it's one month must be exempt. So when you say mom and pops are exempt, that's someone who owns but one unit or two units or one or two buildings? Yes. And they have to be a natural person. That means, by natural person, that means no corporations or LLCs or anything like that. It can be um, a natural person or a limited liability uh, company in which all members are natural persons and own no more than two residential properties that collectively include no more than four dwelling units. Okay, so that that makes sense. So most places, you can charge a reasonable amount on, of a deposit by today's standards. By next year's standards, what's reasonable is going to be a whole lot less. That's right. I doubt that the law is retroactive because that would be an ex post facto law and you can't really do that. Um, So if you have a lease or something now with a security deposit, it's going to remain the same, um, but it's for new new rentals. Well, I don't know that it would be ex post facto because that's generally... And and for our listeners, ex post facto laws are specifically mentioned in the Constitution that you can't punish somebody uh, today for law that came into effect after um, what it was that we did. But that's generally limited to criminal sanctions and not civil actions. I just want to correct myself. I'm reading from the article here. It takes effect July 1, not April 1. July 1, 2024. So we know that it's not, it should not date back to people who rented before the law was passed. But what do we know if it's going to apply to people? If somebody rents today after the law has been signed into law, but before it takes effect, Will they be entitled to some kind of a refund come July, or does it really only apply to new rentals starting July 1st, if we know? My understanding is it applies only to new rentals uh, come July 1st, 2024. I I would agree with that, too. I agree with that as well. So what other changes or laws are there that have changed in landlord-tenant at the state level? Yes, there's uh, a new bill uh, that uh, uh, amends uh, the 2019 uh, 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 Tenant uh, Protection Act. Uh, It's called uh, SB 567, and um, uh, it uh, it makes it 
more difficult to uh, evict a tenant for an owner move in. Um, and it has certain restrictions, like the owner has to actually move in within one year. Uh, and also, if there is stated a renovation, instead of just stating that we want to renovate and it's going to take longer than 30 days, so here's your 60-day notice, you have to specify what the renovations are and you have to attach a permit from the city for those renovations in order to give that uh, 30 or 60 day notice. Has that, is that gone into effect or is that also given a, a an effective date? You know, um, I'm, uh, I, I'm not sure when the effective date, it's been signed and it, it passed. Uh, but I, I'm, um, uh, I'm not sure when it goes into effect. Um, um, so I, I, uh, I have, um, if I, if I find it during the broadcast, I will let you know, but right now I, I don't see exactly when it's going into effect. And of course, if it's silent on when it goes into effect and it's oh, not yeah. just, I found it. it th- this is the one that's April 1, 2024. This is April 1, 2024. So April, starting April, owners intending to move in are somewhat limited on their ability to say, well, I want to move in someday. They have to really have things, plans, concrete plans in place. And then come right. they're going to They're going to have to move in within one year. And contrast that to San Francisco. San Francisco's owner move-in or relative move-in law requires that people move in within uh, three months and that they stay in the unit 36 continuous months. So it's it's actually a, a more onerous San Francisco regulation. Is there anything else coming to change at the state level in landlord-tenant law? I'm not aware of anything that's gone through beyond that. There are always, you know, um, they're looking to tweak the uh, Tenant Protection Act of 2019 a little more. Um, Tenant advocates are discussing things with, you know, landlord advocates. Yeah, at the, uh, you know, at the Capitol. Okay, and we can understand that. And, of course, the big sea change came in 2019 with the Tenant Protection Act, when that took effect, it seems like the world changed at that point. It seems like now all they're really doing is tidying up and making tweaks along the way. But it does beg the question, is there any sense of why all this change is necessary? I mean, in particular, focus on evictions to allow owner occupancy. Is there evidence that that's been abused, that um, this owner occupant requirement has been abused by landlords to get people out, maybe because they're mad at them or for whatever reason? Well, it it, it, has, but I'll let Jessica talk to it. Go ahead. I was going to just say it seems to be because, you know, there wouldn't be the tightening of the regulations if there weren't, you know, a slew of complaints. 
you know, the legislature isn't proactive in that sense. Generally, they tend to react to what's been going on. And of course, you brought up the example of San Francisco, where that's been really tightened down over the recent years. But San Francisco also has rent control and Mm -hmm. forcing people out might better allow a landlord to adjust rents to market. So obviously you've got these competing factions that might not exist previously. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's entirely true. You know, um, you, landlords in San Francisco have to be careful because there are regulations on buyouts and, you know, owner move in or relative move in that affect the, um, you know, the ability to continue renting the unit or to, you know, to go out of the rental market or whatever, you know, it's, there's just, there's a lot of regulation because San Francisco is a, you know, seven mile by seven mile peninsula. There's not a lot of open space to build projects much anymore. So, you know, got to be careful. Is that subject to negotiation between the owner and the tenant? Which? Can, they, can the tenant agree that the owners can move in and take over and whatever they decide to do is fine if they're paid a check enough to make it worth their while? Well, if if it's a vacancy agreement instead of an owner move-in eviction, then yes, because a vacancy agreement can have terms other than just an eviction. An owner move-in eviction it has, you know, it lists the owner moving into the unit as the basis for evicting the tenant. And there's a relocation fee that has to be paid. And there's all sorts of uh, paperwork that has to be filed at the rent board and served on the tenant and all of this other stuff. And there's, you know, they have to keep filing forms at the rent board for five years after the owners do. Um, and so, yeah, there's, so that's, a very complicated thing and it affects um, it, it, the unit is designated as the owner's unit is relative to any future owner move-ins unless there's some reason why not like it's a second floor thing and the owner needs to you know have a first floor unit because they use a walker or a cane or something um, but uh, yeah so um, and then it, but a vacancy agreement or a buyout agreement as they're more colloquially called um, can have other terms, uh, you know, and releases of claims and things like that, that, um, that works out more between the landlord and tenant. Yeah. But the landlord has to really, the landlord, I would recommend in most counties should use a real estate attorney who's knowledgeable to do this because in addition to San Francisco, several other counties have now adopted like, uh, a pre-negotiation cooling off uh, kind of thing where it's like 45 days uh, you have to uh, you you have to have advised the tenant of his rights and he has to sign a pre-agreement agreement and wait 45 days before you can negotiate with him on the actual agreement and right uh, and if you don't do that most likely your agreement is void. So in the old days, the tenant would, uh, the landlord might wave a $5,000 check in front of the tenant and have him sign a notice that he's moving out at the end of the month or, or 
that's not going to fly anymore. Yeah, that's that's a fact. And in San Francisco, uh, they're also uh, vacancy agreements are also regulated by the rent board. Um, there's a whole lot of rules that go with them. But the big thing is there's a declaration. I mean, a, a disclosure document that has to be served on tenants and a landlord declaration that needs to be filed at the rent board that it was served. And then you have to, you know, before any kind of negotiations can begin. And then the parties cannot sign an agreement for 30 days. Um, And then after that, the last person to sign 45 days from that is a period that a tenant can change their mind because it's a not a fault eviction it's not even an eviction you're listening to your legal rights on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco Bay Area what's the status of the landlord tenant relationship to what extent am i still protected from eviction do i have to pay my tenants to move I know there's upcoming limits to a security deposit, but will it be retroactive? Tonight's guests, David Finkelstein, Sal Timpano, and Jessica Chalek, are among the best landlord-tenant attorneys in the region. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, Call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And as always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. Tonight we're talking landlord-tenant law. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. So we've talked a little bit about some of the changes that are coming at the state level. What's happening locally? We talked a little bit about the moratoriums, and those have predominantly ended. But they rolled out and then went away in quite different in quite different manners. What's the net result? Uh, where are we now in San Francisco compared to Alameda, for example? I think all moratoria have been lifted now. Uh, as far as like eviction moratoria, I think there's still in uh, um, Alameda County, there may still be whether you can raise the rent yet. I think that um, you can't do that until 2024. Might even be July 2024, but I'm not positive. But I think a lot of jurisdictions uh, uh, are adding supplemental uh, relocation and moving fee requirements to what the um, uh, statewide uh, requirement is, which is generally, you know, one month where you could waive the last month. But there's a lot of uh, counties and cities that have added supplemental relocation fees. Uh, I'm not sure what San Francisco has, but I'm sure it has that too. Oh, San Francisco has a whole formal relocation system they they come out every march 1st with what the new relocation will be for the for that year since the rent board's fiscal year starts march 1st at some point 
I mean, I look at the housing market and the rental market in California, and at some point, are the landlords just going to go away? I mean, I look at more and more of these protections, and they're all well-intentioned, but it seems they're not balanced. Is there some point where the market is going to be so damaged that it's just not going to work? Well, currently, Jeff, there's a uh, um, a fee for vacant rental units that's being implemented by the rent board. Um, I don't know if Jeff, um, I mean, if uh, Jessica or David have come across those, but um, landlords are being sent um, bills for a rent board fee for vacant units. So it seems that at least at the local level, the San Francisco, uh, you know, government is anticipating landlords withholding units from the market, which San Francisco desperately needs. And so they want to, you know, grab those units as, as much as they can. And so they're, they're, they're charging a fee to keep it vacant. And there's exemptions, um, that, that could apply. And if, if an exec- exemption does not apply, then the landlords will have to pay the, I think it's called a vacancy fee or something like that. Um, so, so that local government at least is looking exactly at ways to counteract what you just brought up. Well, to a point they have, but I'm actually looking a step further. We've seen in the last few years that owners of some huge commercial properties shopping centers, hotels, they're walking away from these and just telling the lender, it's yours, I'm out of here. I want out of this business, at least here. Is there any likelihood or anything on the horizon that at some point landlords are going to start doing that with rental properties? I I haven't seen uh, that, certainly not down here in San Mateo with Santa Clara um, on the peninsula. I haven't seen it either. Oh, sorry, Jessica. No, I said I'm not aware either. So, you know. Yeah, I I haven't seen it, but landlords do express that to me, like individual landlords, um, smaller landlords, you know, not not bigger companies, but uh, what we've been calling mom and pop on the program, landlords. They expressed to me that they just want out and that uh, if they get a vacant unit, they don't want to pay to get out because it's very expensive, you know, with with all the, you know, all the costs involved. So they just uh, if they get a vacant unit, they tell me they don't want to re-rent it. I don't follow up and find out if they ever did. If I ever, you know, if if I get uh, if I create a vacancy through an eviction action or a buyout, I don't usually follow up. Um, to find out if, if it's been re-rented. But they, I, I do have landlords expressed to me recently, I'd say maybe over the last uh, six, maybe even eight months, that they're not going to re-rent, you know, the newly vacated unit. So I don't know. It sounds to me from what you're saying then that there's enough money in it that at least the larger landlords are pretty comfortable on a bigger scale. And perhaps it's becoming less desirous for smaller mom and pops to buy in and invest in rental properties. Well, the, uh, I, I don't know if they're satisfied with it enough, but the, uh, the alternative is not walking away. The alternative for most uh, residential landlords is to sell the property 
to somebody else. If it's a single family house, maybe it'll be to someone who lives in it. So they take it off the rental market and they, um, they, they sell it. But, and even in multi-unit apartments, uh, I haven't seen any landlords walking away, but they sell it and maybe they sell it for much less than they thought it was worth, uh, uh, previously. You're listening. There's a lot of parts of the country where, you know, these rental units, um, they're, they're still an investment and they produce income. But in San Francisco over, over time, not even that much time, you know, the, the, the prices of the rents go up. And when there's vacancies, landlords can, can do better on their investment. So, you know, as long as that continues to happen in this small area that Jessica described earlier, where we can't really just add space, um, we're going to continue having legislation get in the middle of this to find a, a way to to make peace between investors and people that need a place to live. So that's what the whole fight's about. And, you know, until we get a, a, a way to I don't know, to, to add more housing or have less people want to live here, it's going to continue going that way. And I imagine there'll always be an investor ready to step up and, and you know, find a way to, uh, to you know, make it work. But it, it does seem on, you know, just, it just seems like landlords would not want to be in the rental business right now if they could get out. It's not easy to get out either. So, you know, it's expensive to get out. So, but uh, I haven't seen it though. Like, like Dave said, I haven't seen any landlords say we're, you know, we're going to walk away. Certainly not. They can't afford to. The mom and pops that I know cannot afford to walk away. So they just got to, you know, hang in there. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KLW San Francisco. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's lawyer referral service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. And let me turn it over to Fabiola from Berkeley. Welcome to your legal rights. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, you know, the speaker here is talking about investment. That's exactly what it is. Rental housing is an investment. It's a business. It's a rental housing industry is a business. I live in a four, an eight-unit building with four empty units, and they've been empty for the past six years since I've lived in this building. Um, you know, the, the, the real estate industry itself is creating the shortage of units by landlords keeping them off the market. Last year, the city of Berkeley passed Measure M, which would allow the city to, starting next year, to tax empty units because we have supposedly a housing shortage. And so that money is going to be used to create and, and build affordable housing. Um, you know, when I hear about small mom and pops, these are business owners. You know, rental property is a risk just like any other business venture. Um, and I think it's just crazy to, you know, to hear someone say, well, you know, they might get out of it. You know, they can Ellis. They can Ellis the, the building. That's what that's been happening for the past 25 years, Ellis evictions. I was Ellis evicted out of 
San Francisco, as a matter of fact, in uh, 19, um, in, in 2000. So um, this is an industry. As a renter, I am a consumer, and I should be able to have rights as a consumer. This industry is so, sorely, sorely underregulated. Sure, San Francisco has has uh, um, tenant protections. Berkeley has tenant protections. But the unincorporated area of Alameda County does not. In Alameda County, we're seeing 100 evictions happening a week, I believe. Some outrageous amount of evictions are happening. And this is causing people to become homeless. State rental law, the rental, um, the Costa Hawkins Rental Housing Act, allows landlords to raise the rent to what the market will bear on empty units so they can double and triple the rents if they want. Or they can keep the units empty. You know, when I hear, well, it costs so much money to own rental property and you have all these expenses, well, the roof should be changed, what, every 25 years or something? Sure, you have to keep the maintenance up of your investment, but every other business has to do the same thing. And for some reason, this industry is allowed to get outrageous um, profits when other industries aren't allowed to do that. This industry industry should be regulated, highly regulated. You know, rent control and good cause for eviction provides protection for the tenant while still providing a fair return on investment to the property. As a matter of fact, the Berkeley rent control law went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found it that the way the law was written did provide a fair uh, income to uh, a fair income to the business owner. You know, Fabiola, you've brought up a lot of interesting points, and I want to ask my guests about a couple of them. Um, first. I'm going to point this one open to my guests because I know between you all, you represent both landlords and tenants. So you might have a sense of this. Fabiola describes a reasonable rate of return or actually huge profits that landlords are making. What is your experience with this? Are mom and pops making huge profits? And what about the larger corporate landlords? Well, I don't think mom and pops are making huge profits. I don't know what she considers huge, but, you know, besides having to keep up the building, they have to pay the taxes and they have, oftentimes they have water and electric meters on the, you know, and gas meters on the property that belong to them that they have to pay as well. Um, And, you know, and it's, so I, I don't, my experience with small holding owners is that they are not making huge profits, that a lot of them are very strapped, that, you know, um, that they can't really afford to have more than, you know, their their own home or, or perhaps one or two rental properties, not much. You know, Fabiola, what I don't think you're taking into account in the huge profits and your analysis of what are huge profits are if these folks were not investing in real estate, they would have their money somewhere. And wherever they put it is going to have a level level of return. And when you start bringing their profits down to less than what you could get on a higher yield savings account, they're not going to run the risk and they're not going to want to put their money there. They may want put it in other investments. So you do want people to receive something. And I think what my guests have been speaking of tonight is trying to forge a balance between landlords and tenants 
so you preserve the rights of tenants and preserves housing stock and people don't get thrown out of their homes on specious grounds that maybe we'll want to move in someday. But on the other hand, you want enough stake in the game that the landlords stay in the business and we still have um, this housing stock available and not a bunch of boarded up buildings as has befallen other in, uh, other areas of the country at times. So, you know, and the Tenant Protection Act of 2019, which is statewide rent con- control and eviction control, does apply to unincorporated Alameda County and, and other areas that are not covered by county measures or city measures. And there's a maximum, my understanding is, is a maximum under that act uh, of uh, 10% per year. And at least my experience with representing landlords that it's very rare for at least the ones that I represent to ever even increase 10%. And I know the speaker said that, you know, they're doubling and tripling. Uh, I haven't uh, seen that. And um, uh, there, there is the average uh, uh, rental rate in the area. And, and for a landlord to try to get more than that is nearly impossible and under today's interest rates, where uh, a more commercial mortgage today is unlikely to be less than 7% or even 7.5%. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't know how someone can buy uh, a property and, and, and make it turn any profit uh at at that kind of rate so it's really the older older owners who have held this property and maybe they don't have a mortgage on the property who are making much more but they've held the property for 20 30 years paid off the mortgage paid the taxes and insurance and also my experience with mom and pops is they don't want any turnover because after four or five years, if a tenant leaves, they have to pay for new carpeting, new paint, new appliances. And that could be as much as $20,000 a unit. Uh, and they can't get that back because they can't get more than the average going rate in the area. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there's the other side of the story. I'm telling the other side of the story. I agree with both uh, both of, of your accounts. Um, the smaller landlords are not looking to turn over their units. Some of them may have tenancies that are really, you know, long-time tenancies, maybe 25, 30-year tenancies. Those are well, well, well below um, market, well below. But the landlords at that point are, you know, either a retirement age or – not really looking to, you know, they've already, they've already achieved what they want to achieve. And they just, you know, they just carry on with those units that are substantially below market. They can afford to do so. And the law is what it is. And they just do it. Um, You know, the value of the building is decreased for sure, because if they sell it that, you know, based on income, it's going to be less income, but, but those tendencies are in place, and I, I know of many that are have been in place, you know, for at least fifteen years that I know of, and the tendencies were twenty years old at that time. So, 
you know, the system is keeping tenants in place who, who want to continue living in a particular unit. And in, at least in San Francisco and other rent control jurisdictions, taking the benefit of the of the um, of the rent control, the rent control doesn't keep up with with market rates. So the unit has to be vacated in order for that to occur. Um, so if a landlord's really heavy laden with long term tenants, you know, the costs go up. The costs are current. Taxes go up. Insurance goes up. Putting the roof, all that stuff is today's cost. There's no way a building can be run with 1970 tenancies in San Francisco. It just it, it won't work. There just won't be any money for anything. There is no fair return. Um, I haven't seen that dire situation, but you can imagine it. You know, um, four unit building, long term tenants uh, paying well below market. But yet the market, you know, the, the, the problem is the market. It's not really, you know, it's the market. The prices go up and then the landlord's got to pay more for all the repairs. Um, like I say, I haven't had that situation, but I can I can see that I can see how that somebody's got it. Somebody's got that. So anyway, one of the few my, industries, uh, one of the few places in our economy where the rate of return is fixed, the costs are fixed, or I should say the income is fixed and the costs are not. So correct. Exactly. So I could see both sides of it. And we're always trying to achieve a balance. But let me turn it over to Ali from San Pablo. You're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Hello. Hi, welcome. You're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Who's this? I know. Is this uh, for Ali? Yes. Okay. Uh, I was just going to ask if uh, uh, an RV can be rented legally if it's parked off the street, of course, in the, in the on my property. So, if I understand your correct your question correctly. You have an RV that is parked on your property. Can you legally rent it, not as an RV for somebody to travel on, but can that be uh, treated as a rental unit and rented out? Oh, it cannot be, huh? No, no, I'm not answering your question. I'm asking if that is your question. Yes, that is my question. Okay. Uh, who'd like to take a stab at that? So, uh, Jeff, this is Sal. I, I haven't had that situation recently, but I have had it in the past. And it had to do with whether or not the RV was legally located um, at a place where it, it could remain. It, it had it had a lot to do with that. Um, and it was in a non-rent control jurisdiction and it was rented out. And um, it just had to had to meet the city requirements for being on a on a piece of land that it was allowed to to be on. Uh, I don't think that fully answers the question. I think a good place to start would be with the uh, San Francisco Rent Board or whatever rent board might be in the area uh, where that's going to be located. But let well, me ask you this. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Down David. on the peninsula here, down on the peninsula here, if you go down El Camino, which is the main street down the peninsula to Stanford University, and you were to look out your window while you were traveling in the middle of El Camino and look on either side, you'd probably see 100 RVs on each side of the street that are more or less permanently parked, and, and the the authorities or whatever, they turn a blind eye. It's, it's not enforced. So I would imagine that it wouldn't be enforced in most areas on a private uh, uh, a lot unless the neighbors complained about some kind of nuisance um, 
coming from that RV. Um, such as right. noise or trash or something or like that. Smells trash or noise or or whatever. Uh, but let me ask you something that hasn't been addressed. Alionce, an RV of one sort or another, wants to rent it out as a rental unit. As regular residential rental units, there are certain requirements. They may vary a little in some from one place to another. Some are required by state law. But there are habitability requirements, certain fixtures that have to be in place. And to what extent would those apply if he was renting out an RV? Um, Well, my understanding of state law is if you're going to rent out something as a residence, it's going to need to meet minimum state standards, which includes, you know, heat and uh, telephone hookups and things like that. Does it have to have a kitchen to make meals or at least have some way to cook a range, not just a hot plate and things of that nature? I think that would depend on the the, the local building requirements for residents. I think yeah, the, California- you wouldn't have an occupancy permit for that RV on a on a uh, let's say it's a regular house in a subdivision, and this RV is parked in uh, in the driveway, for example. Uh, that uh, and many of these uh, municipalities have some kind of limitations on how long you could park there, uh, and. Uh, I think it would depend on the municipality. But as I said, my experience is if they're not enforcing the rules on a public street, uh, it seems unlikely they would enforce the rules unless some neighbor complained about it. But, uh, you know, the question is, if this gentleman who's calling in wants to sign a one-year lease and then the tenant stops paying and claims... There's no occupancy permit for this, uh, and it's an illegal thing. Uh, he might be f- forced to, you know, uh, try to get rid of this tenant and not get paid the rent for many months until he's able to evict. So, yeah, that's a real risk, David. That's that's for sure a real risk, and that's kind of where the rubber meets the road on this. Um, I haven't had the issue except a long, long time ago, and you know it was okay then. But it could also be for reasons of non-enforcement or just the landlords and tenants got along. But you kind of got to do these things with considering the worst case scenario and how you're going to deal with it. Uh, otherwise, you know you're just wide open to the problem. My, my sense would be in, around here, around our area, that it's probably not not um, legal to do it you know, for over, for over a certain period of time, maybe for a week or two. Uh, but it's got to be legally parked. That's, that's number one. It's got to be in a legal location. And then I, I don't think it can be permanent housing around here. You know, there's other places in California that are, you know, pretty much farmland might be different there, but around here, I, I just don't know. I'd have to research it. You know, I think we'd all have to research that one because it's such an uncommon, it may, maybe this has become more common since COVID. I don't know. Yeah, that's another issue. If you, for example, if you were out in uh, uh, near uh, 
uh, sort of wide open spaces and not within a city, but in the county. And uh, you were parking on an empty lot, uh, whether you could rent an RV. Uh, I, I, I think you might still have to get some kind of permit from the county to do that. But and, uh, and David, also in line with that, the Tenant Protection Act does have provisions for mobile homes. I don't know if this fits in, if an RV fits into mobile homes. No. Uh, could, no? I, I've done a little bit of mobile home in the past, and mobile homes are specifically um, the, you know, the, in, in mobile home parks. Yes. You know, they're the they're the houses that are there um, or or the trailers that are in mobile home parks because the park owns the land and the person owns the trailer or the house. OK, yeah. So that would be a little different than the RV a little bit. They look different too. those mobile homes are they're mobile in that they can be moved around, but they're not usually on wheels. Yeah. They're they're, they're, the, the idea is they're they're. Um, they can be put up on a semi truck and moved if they need to be. Um, they're not. They don't have foundations like a house. They're at most bolted to the pad. They're sitting on. Yeah, yeah. As this a practical would... as a practical matter, they were mobile to get there, but they may never be mobile to leave there. Right. Well, the the concept is is based on the fact that the mobile home park owns the land and the person owns the owns or rents the house or trailer. So, you know, you have a separate in, in when normally when you own um, a single family house, you own the land that it's sitting on as well. Yeah. Ali, I hope we helped figure out your problem to the extent that somebody can. It really depends a lot on local conditions and where you're looking at keeping it. Well, basically I was, calling to see because I'm planning to buy some farmland which already has some RVs parked on it I was hoping to convert those to at least you know temporary like a, you know a weekly rentals or whatever it sounds like if you're looking at farmland you're probably in a better place but you need to check locally and see what the local requirements are Right. Um, I'd, go, I'd go to whatever county that farmland is in. I'd go to their um, planning department or or uh, county administration building or something like that and see how, you know, what you would be able to do with RVs on that property. Okay. Thank you very much for your help. All righty. Thank you for joining us in your legal rights. You know, we don't have that much time left, and I wanted to pose this to you. As you could tell... There's a lot of differing feelings about where we are because tenants have begun to feel like it's really unsafe for them. They can't be sure that their housing stock is going to stay there. Landlords are really threatened because their costs are rising and rising and in many locales, the rents are frozen. So they may end up being in danger of default, but they're not allowed to leave the market. That begs the question, you know, what what tools are in place? What can we do to try to get these things back in balance and get these folks working together again? If there is some idea about what we can do. Well, the real thing 
is that California is well behind on its building programs. There is a state program that every, I think it's two or three years, maybe it's four years, something like that. They, they, the city or county has to file a report on what they're what they're planning to do about building new housing in the area and uh the city or you know and it's approved or not approved or whatever but nobody's keeping up with it there's a an article recently the state released an accountability report on san francisco's housing policies and practices uh it was um so that's, I'm not sure what HCD is. Oh, California Department of Housing and Community Development website. Um, so, and, and what they're saying is that San Francisco is so far behind on its housing production goal that it's not going to make 82,000 new homes by 2031, which is necessary to address affordability and overcrowding. And a lot of it in San Francisco has to do with the permitting process and how slow everything is to get everything done here. Apparently it's, it's one of the slowest in the, in the state. And that begs the question, what's going to happen with downtown? Are they going to open up enough units to make a dent in the shortage in San Francisco? The businesses have left. The restructuring of a lot of those businesses mean people will be working remotely and living far away, will opening up those units, you know, really address the problem or maybe part of it? Well, one of the, again, uh, I've been trying to do a bit of reading on this, but um, as far as converting um, business buildings to residential buildings, is it's not as easy as it sounds because business buildings that are built with a lot of open space for offices and cubicles and things like that, um, stuff that gets put in afterward. Whereas for if you're going to convert, you know, a floor of an old building into residential units, you've got to have internal walls. And in San Francisco, you've got to deal with light and air requirements and things like that. So it's, it's, I was reading a New York Times article on that recently where it's 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 kind of difficult to do. It's not impossible. There are ways to do it, but um but you know, it's it's a lot to invest in, you know. The question is whether those landlords want to invest in it or whether they want to sell the building to somebody who wants to invest in it. Well, some other states um have uh, used uh, uh I think uh, sort of innovative ways for uh, to foster um, affordable housing, for example, uh, Maui in the island of Hawaii, Maui, uh, they have a program where if you submit a lease for one year and and each year you'd have to resubmit the lease and the renewal, and if it's within the standards of what they set out outline as affordable. You get a very substantial uh, 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 tax deduction. I mean, like, I believe I have one unit in that program, and I'm paying about 10% of what the going tax rate is because I qualify for having rented it for under affordable rentals. And that would be some kind of um, something to look into 
maybe in areas in the state of California, that there are other ways that if um, uh, a landlord can pay a 90% reduction in um, uh, property tax because they uh, meet the uh, affordable guidelines of, of rent and they can prove it with a signed lease, hey, that's another way to, to get to that uh, uh, affordable uh, area without building new units. That would certainly have the state put their money where their mouth is. You know, the state's interested in affordable housing. If they're giving a tax uh, credit to the landlord, they'd in essence be somewhat, um, you know, paying for the affordable housing or, or subsidizing it. Um, you know, not to use that as a bad word, but they would be, you know, subsidizing some of the some of the cost, you know, paying it in a. I think that's an excellent idea. I think it's been talked about before in the past too, and just never went anywhere. And maybe it was done in different angles, but I, I'm, I'm, I would be on board with something like that, David. That would that makes sense to me. Uh, the tenant would get the, the benefit of the lower rent, and the, you know, everyone in the state would be contributing in part to that lower rent, and not just the landlord. You know, would kind of spread it. Um, so, and I like. I, I would like that. I'd look into it further, I guess. But but to me, I don't see any problems with that at all. Except that right now the state is suddenly running at what appears to be a huge deficit in the upcoming huh. year. And while the state wants to talk a good game, the fact is I don't think the state wants to subsidize landlords with the expectation that that will work to the benefit of tenants when instead they can act as a whipping boy that is, they could <laughs> slap the hand of the landlords, hoping that that will get them in line with the tenants. And in the end, there's no simple answers, I don't think. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area, where we're focused on what's new, what's happening in landlord-tenant law. Our guests have been landlord-tenant attorneys extraordinaire, Jessica Chilek and Sal Timpano of San Francisco, and David Finkelstein of San Mateo. And our final guest tonight has been, of course, all of you. Our show tonight's been produced by yours truly. Please join us again next week for your legal rights for our annual year-end tax tips. That's Wednesday at 6 p.m., where, as always, we will take your calls and answer your questions. A big thanks to tonight's guest, and at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden, and remember to know, understand, and zealously protect your legal rights. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.